I'm Dan Stoller. I'm from Bedford, New York. Um, I'm one of the leaders of Northern Westchester Indivisible. I'm one of the many groups in the 18th. Um, and we're excited that all of you are here to meet Mr. Metaxas here. Um, I wanted to uh, just quickly describe to you what's been going on with, within the New York 18th and a coalition reforming, and then I'll introduce John here. So uh, a couple months ago, we started a coalition of all the activist groups within the 18th. It's called Keep NY 18 Blue. So if you go to keepny18blue.org, you'll read more about it. Uh, we have 13 groups around our district involved, every county, Orange, Duchess, Putnam, Westchester is represented. We have about 5,000 or so members on Facebook across those groups. So it's a nice coalition that's getting in place, but there'll be many things for us to work on as a coalition. So um, this is the first event that we're sort of putting on as a coalition of activist groups. So the first time I met John, uh, he showed up in my living room. Uh, it was our first indivisible meeting. Uh, right after the craziness in November of 16 and uh, we got to chatting and I didn't know much about him and over a couple breakfasts I sort of learned more about his background and realized that we you know he's been talking about what he's going to talk to you guys about you know since I met him sort of just sort of explaining what it's like to be a journalist and, and a citizen in this crazy time just as a um, way of a bio here um, and I'm going to read some of this stuff so there's a lot here I've shortened it um, John has three decades of on-air experience at CBS, CNN, ABC, and other networks. For the past 14 years, John's broadcasts on WCBS News Radio 880 have reached a million listeners every weekend. He has covered such diverse stories as the Madoff and Milken sentencings, uh, the Martha Stewart trial, the Times Square bombing attempt, and the Miracle on the Hudson. He's interviewed amazing people like Bill Gates, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Barack Obama. Um, that wasn't enough. Uh, John is a member of SAG-AFTRA, which I know there are some folks here. Uh, he serves on the union's National Broadcast Steering Committee and has been involved in collective bargaining at the shop level. He's an attorney. Don't hold that against him. He was admitted to the bar in New York, as well as the, as well as the Southern and Eastern Districts, and has a JD from Columbia Law, an MS from Columbia Journalism, a BA from Columbia College. He's got the credentials. He's a smart guy. So, John, thank you for thank joining you. us. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Dan, uh, for those. Thank you, everybody. And thank you, Dan, for those kind words. I told Dan that I would come and talk to you as a journalist. And that's what I'm doing. I'm a journalist, and I'm very careful about trying to step over those lines. And I struggled with how do you make a speech to a political group as a journalist and not be an advocate and try to maintain that fairness, which we as a profession are being accused of not having anymore. And so I've thought long and hard about what I would say today and, and what I wouldn't say. But I think I do have some things to say. And that's why I proposed this topic. I thought it would resonate with this group. And I've actually been thinking a lot about what's been going on lately. So I'm going to divide my talk into four parts. I'm going to tell you how I had interacted with the Donald Trump phenomenon early in my career. The second part will be how I'm interacting with it now as both a journalist and a teacher. Then I'll get into what I know about the 18th Congressional District, and I'll try to link that to the theme. And then I'd like to conclude with just some thoughts about resistance and what does resistance mean and how do you do that. And throughout that, I'll try to weave in the story of my career and let you know kind of what makes me tick. So I wanted to start by telling you 30 years ago, when I was 30 years old, it was a very exciting time in my life. 
I was a young producer at ABC News. And I had run the radio station as an undergraduate at Columbia, and then, as Dan said, went on to law school and journalism school. And Rune Arledge hired me, and he gave me the job of my dreams to cover a presidential campaign and to actually be one of the boys on the bus. There were girls, too, then, but the phrase was originally the boys on the bus. By that time, it was planes. And to go to 46 states and cover a campaign, to follow Richard Gephardt, that's who I followed, for four months, up and down in the plains, five cities a day, to go to every city in Iowa five times over the course of 40 days in January and February of 1988. And I got a really close look at all of these politicians and these men who were running for president at that time and watched them say the same speech over and over again at pig farms in Iowa and basements like this one and just watched that life firsthand. And it was fascinating for me uh, to do that. When Dan Quayle was introduced to the American public and nobody knew who he was, when George Bush won the nomination and picked him to be vice president, I went to Indiana and spent a week investigating his background and working with a correspondent. At that time, I was a producer and interviewing everybody who grew up with him. And we did some reports on him. Then I covered the Bush-Dukakis race. And it was just a fascinating time. When the campaign ended, I needed a new beat. And so at that time, ABC had hired an investigative correspondent who had come from Forbes magazine, a business reporter. His name is Alan Dots Frank. He's still one of my dearest friends today. We later shared an office at CNN, and he couldn't make it today. He wanted to come. But he had a thesis that Donald Trump was broke in 1990. And he needed somebody to work with him who could do the deep investigative work. He had been to law school himself. He was a Columbia journalism graduate as well. And so we spent six months together digging into Donald Trump's finances. And that was, that was the time when networks would spend the money to let people work for six months and not be on the air with a story. And we went downtown to the... Uh, Surrogate's Court building on Chamber Street, and in the basement there were the mortgage records of all the buildings in Manhattan. And we went through these dusty books, and we looked up every single one of Trump's properties. And we added up the, the cost that he paid for them, the amount of money he owed on the mortgage, and the assessed valuation. And we came up with a figure that he owed $3 billion, but the properties were worth half that. <laughs> and... Trump liked to say at that time that, well, when he put his name on them, the value doubled. So that was what he was, that's what he was selling people at that time. He was also opening a new casino, the Taj Mahal, in Atlantic City, which was the biggest casino in the world at that point. And he borrowed three quarters of a million dollars and, uh, by issuing junk bonds, paying 14% to build that casino. He also borrowed another $75 million from a bank. But the way he structured it was he wasn't personally liable for any of it. And so we have his lawyer on tape, and this lawyer was not Michael Cohen, but he was a little Michael Cohen-esque in his aspect. And he's telling us into the camera, Donald Trump is not on the hook for any of this. And then we were also talking with casino analysts who said the Taj Mahal is not going to generate enough income to pay this amount of debt, and it's going to fail. 
So we put out a report on the day the Taj Mahal opened. Peter Jennings introduced it. It was on ABC World News Tonight. And it basically said that analysts say that Trump is not going to have the money to pay for this casino. Well, Trump didn't like that report. <laughs> we later found out he called Rune Arledge, the president of ABC News, and said, I want to play golf with you. I want to discuss this. And Rune said to him, I'm sorry, I don't have time to play golf with you. And what Rune was doing was Rune had our back. And Rune never told us about this, which was actually the right thing, because the journalists should know about that stuff. We should just do our jobs. And so Trump left a profane voice message on Allen's answering machine. Now, this was 1990. Remember, we had those little cassettes. And what did you do when the cassette ran out? You rewound it and you recorded over it. To this day, Alan regrets that he didn't keep that, <laughs> that tape. And then that reporting went on. It turned out that Trump, in fact, did arguably go bankrupt within several months of our report. And our report was, if not the first report, one of the first reports that said this. And at the same time this was happening, we were speaking with an analyst by the name of Marvin Rothman, R-O-F-F-M-A-N. Has anybody here heard that name? Okay, so we do have a couple of people. So Marvin was speaking to us off the record. Marvin was one of the analysts who had analyzed the casino and said that it couldn't make it. When Marvin said that to a Wall Street Journal reporter and the reporter quoted him, Trump again went nuts. Trump called the securities firm that Marvin worked for, Janney, Montgomery, Scott, and Philadelphia, and threatened to sue them. He demanded that they write a letter of apology to him, and that Marvin sign this letter and send it to Trump. He almost dictated it to them. The firm actually caved. The firm didn't want to tangle with Trump, and they made Marvin write the letter. But then Marvin started having second thoughts about it the night he sent it. And then the next day when Trump wrote back saying, could you change a couple of things in here? Instead of, instead of saying you hope that the casino succeeds, could you say you expect the casino succeeds? And Marvin wouldn't do it. And he wrote a letter rescinding his first letter and his firm fired him. So at that point, Trump made a number of public comments about Marvin. He called him, see if this sounds familiar to you, a bad analyst, a very unprofessional guy, a totally mediocre guy with no talent, not a good man, a man of little talent and a disgrace to his profession. So Marvin Rothman sued him for defamation. But Marvin Rothman was almost destroyed by this ordeal because nobody on Wall Street would hire him. He had hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, in legal bills. And he had to go on unemployment. It was a very difficult time for him. And you should all go to Politico and read the profile on Marvin Rothman. They tell the whole saga. Rothman actually won a settlement from Trump because he was telling the truth. And so Trump had to pay him a lot of money. But we don't know how much because guess what? <laughs> There was a non-disclosure, a confidentiality agreement. So Marvin is, is one of the few people who went up against Trump and beat him. 
And Marvin took the money, opened his own firm, made a lot of money. He's very successful now. But they really tried to destroy him. And when the lawyers were interviewing him for the lawsuit, they asked him, oh, do you go to gay bars? And he had to defend himself and say, look, I, I'm in a committed relationship for 30 years. But they really kind of stopped at nothing to tar him. So he has gone down now as the man who beat Trump. And the difference between Rune Arledge's reaction and the Janie Montgomery Scott's reaction is that Rune Arledge came from the world of journalism. And we have a tradition of free press, First Amendment. Marvin was a kind of reporter as well. He's reporting on the financials of the firm, but he came from a financial firm that didn't have that tradition. They just want to make money at that firm. So they caved immediately. Rune Arledge had our back, but his firm didn't have his back. That was the difference. So hang on to that idea of truth and what is truth, because that was what saved Marvin Rothman, because he did tell the truth. That story actually changed my career, because I had been a political reporter, and now I was becoming a business reporter. And I started reading voraciously every economic publication I could. I, I had never taken an economics course or a business course in college. I had studied law, I had majored in history, I loved politics from a young age, but I didn't know that much about economics. But I educated myself and I went on to, at that point, CNBC was starting up. So I got my first job in 1990 at CNBC as a correspondent at the age of 32. Started interacting with all these people, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, all these people in finance and business CEOs, Andy Grove, who was the father of Silicon Valley, the head of Intel, Herb knows this, he's from IBM, and got to do great things. I then later went on to CNN and became an anchor. I had my own program on Saturday morning. It was called Your Money for four years on CNN in the late 90s. And I worked for Lou Dobbs before he went off the deep end. <laughs> I actually thought... Lou had some journalistic integrity in those years, more so even than, than CNBC. He ran a better shop. CNBC was a little bit, they were kind of stock jockeys, you know, promoters of the stock market. But Lou was a little sounder at that point. I think he wanted celebrity and he moved in a totally different direction later in his career. But at CNN, I interacted with all sorts of folks. Again, Dan mentioned Gorbachev. I got to interview people like that. I also appeared on CNN FN, where I must have a half dozen times interviewed this young Republican pollster named Kellyanne Fitzpatrick. I don't know if anybody knows who that is today. <laughs> so, so it was a really interesting time. And then, and, then, and then I left CNN and went to Silicon Valley and left the profession. One of the many times I've left to go do something else. And it's like that line from Godfather. Every time I try to quit journalism, they, they bring me back in. But I did go to Silicon Valley and I worked in corporate America. I didn't really like it very much, but I did do corporate communications for a year at E-Trade. But anyway, so my career is going on and so is Donald Trump's. And Donald Trump is becoming more and more famous and people would say things to me like, oh, did you see him on The Apprentice last night? And I would say, no, but do you know what he's really like? <laughs> I know, we, we actually looked into him. 15 years ago, and we actually know what he's made out of. And that was an interesting transition for me. Let me come now to the future and tell you what's going on now with Trump. 
He actually occupies a lot of my brain power every day when I go to work. I actually have to deal with him. I'm not doing investigative work anymore. Now, the last 15 years, I shifted from national. When I came back to journalism, came into local news. So I've been at WCBS Radio and Channel 2. I've been primarily anchoring on the weekends and then reporting during the week on both television and radio. And then in the last few years, I've stopped the reporting and I've been doing business news during the week at Bloomberg. And early on in his administration, the theory was that Jared and Ivanka were observing the Sabbath on Saturday morning, and thus Trump was sort of on his own. I think later information we have has kind of debunked that idea, but the tweets started coming out on Saturday morning when I was anchoring. And so the tweet comes out, and not much is happening usually on a Saturday news-wise. So all of a sudden you have a statement from the President of the United States on Twitter, and how do you handle it? Well, it takes really all of your journalistic integrity and skill and thought to try to do that. So this was one of the first ones. This was one of the first ones that came out. How low has President Obama gone to tap, T-A-P-P, tap my phones during the very sacred election process? This is Nixon Watergate, bad or sick guy. So what, what do you do with that when... when <laughs> when you're anchoring. So what's the news in there? Okay, the news is, is that the current president is accusing the former president of tapping his phone. T-A-P-P. Well, T-A-P. But I do radio, so spelling doesn't matter as much for me. Uh, except now everything is closed captioned and all that. So when I was at a newspaper, I wrote for a brief period for the National Law Journal, our editor said to us, we covered a lot of contentious lawsuits at that publication, and the lawyers would get very nasty with each other and say nasty things about the other side to you, hoping that you'll write it, and then it'll get into print. And my editor always said to me, don't let them get into a pissing match on our pages. That we deal in facts, we don't deal in this kind of invective, because it doesn't really, doesn't really advance the story. So I went back to that advice, and I said, okay, he just called the president sick, that qualifies as, as a pissing match. And pardon my French for using that, but we have some very salty terms in the newsroom. We have some terms that are much saltier than that one, which I, which I won't repeat here. So I, I think what I said was, if I remember correctly, President Trump is accusing President Obama of tapping his phones during the election process. No response yet from President Obama. I mean, I'm trying to be fair here. You know, and I know there's not going to be a response, but... I think it was maybe a week or two later, this one came out. And by the way, this is an early Trump effort, so there are no capitals. <laughs> it's all upper and lower case, but no all caps yet. He hadn't advanced to that. The next week he did. The fake news media, failing New York Times, CNN, NBC News, and many more, is not my enemy. It is the enemy of the American people. Sick. So fake news is in capitals, and now sick is in capitals. It wasn't there before. So how do you handle this one? Well, this is news to me. I mean, what is the news value here? He called the news media the enemy of the American people. And, you know, we think about every word when we're broadcasting. Even though we're writing a short script that can be 15 seconds maybe, we do try to put our standards on it. So I reported that. Then this one comes out. 
Read Megan Kelly, quote, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, blood coming out of her wherever nose just got on with thought or something. Okay, this one I said, you know what? These words are not coming out of my mouth. And that's really, to me, the very insidious thing about covering him as a broadcast journalist, especially, and especially in radio, where we don't have the luxury of putting the words on the screen or in print where you put them on the page. If you're going to quote him, those words have to come out of your mouth. And I don't really like it when those words come out of my mouth. I try to be very careful. I like to say quote, unquote. I like to use the inflection of my voice to indicate that in a different way of speaking, that this is not the way I speak. And little verbal cues to the extent that I can. But I think that to a great extent, Karen Tumulty, who is a columnist, said that what the press hasn't really learned yet is not to swing at every pitch of his that maybe some of these should not be repeated. But it's sort of a process because he's the first president tweeting. And, you know, this is a phenomenon. This is news. We deal in what's new. We deal in, in what's put out there. Okay, here's another example. Why is the United States Post Office, which is losing many billions of dollars a year while charging Amazon and others so little to deliver their packages, making Amazon richer and the post office dumber and poorer, should be charging much more. So this is now an issue of context. If you think this is a business story about Amazon, you're wrong. It's a story about the fact that the owner of Amazon owns the Washington Post that has had reporters on Trump's trail for many months now, and to repeat this without putting it in the wider context is not accurate reporting. And so all of a sudden now, it makes your story longer and more complicated to write, and sometimes you only have 15 seconds. That's also what he's counting on, the fact that in broadcasting, so many of our reports are so fast that they have to get out there. We have to get them out there, and we're writing on a deadline. We do an hour, we come off, and then we rewrite the next hour. So you're on deadline, you want to be accurate, you want to be fair to your listeners, and you want to do it right. But that was another challenging one. Right. You don't know if the you don't know if the facts are true. I mean, I, you paraphrase this basically saying, and and then you know there are certain words that you were like like the verb, the verb that we usually use to quote somebody is says somebody says something, but. If you're not really sure the validity of what they're saying, you will use the word claims. Somebody claims this. It's a little verbal tick in the writing. I don't know, does that resonate with the audience or is that just something that we know as journalists? I think it doesn't sometimes. Maybe you're right, maybe it doesn't resonate. People don't know the difference between opinion and news stories, they think they're the same. Well, that's really an interesting point and maybe we can get into that in Q&A, but which is, I think, is starting right now. <laughs> yes. The one thing that bothers me about the reporting, and they're still doing this, is that reporters say Trump thinks so-and-so. Well, Trump you, believes so-and-so. He doesn't think or believe anything. Well, <laughs> I actually teach journalism, and if a student of mine says somebody thinks something or somebody believes something, I tell them, you only deal in facts. How do you know somebody believes something? How do you know somebody thinks something? You will never know, ever, what any human, other human being thinks or believes. So a journalist can never report 
what somebody thinks or believes. They can only attribute. And so a little clue when you're watching MSNBC or I guess in this crowd, I, I don't want to say Fox. <laughs> uh, <coughs> but um, I, I'm often taken by cable news has a big hole to fill and they've got to entertain their audiences. And, you know, there's a difference between a panel discussion where everybody tells you what they think and then a reporter who's actually reporting and going out and telling you what they know. And I like to see the difference between the prosecutors and the reporters when they're interviewed on these programs. And by the way, I never use the word show. Everybody uses the word show at NBC later on the show. When I was being trained by people at CBS, you never use the word show for a news program because show is for show business. And we're not show business. We're the news. So it's on the broadcast or on the program. So those old standards, I'm a dinosaur. Those old standards are going away, but I still use them. But when you listen to these reporters, listen for the phrase, well, my reporting tells me that. That means that they have been out there and somebody has told them this. They have discovered this fact. Also, watch when you're reading is what you're reading predicting the future, which so much of commentary now does. Anything that is looking at the future, I don't buy it until I know it's true. Or are they actually telling you an objective fact that they know? So the question becomes, what's the difference between opinion and fact? Well, you can discern that as a listener or a viewer or a reader if you listen and read and view critically. And, you know, you're not as taken in by all the noise that we're hearing. But we are hearing noise. We are hearing a lot of noise out there right now. Okay, so when did I hit the wall and stop reporting on the tweets? A producer gave me an item that said, Twitter is inspecting all of its accounts and purging the ones that it considers to be fake and bots and all of this. And then the producer gave me another item that said, Trump had just heard about that news item and tweeted out, Twitter should delete the New York Times account because it's fake news. That's where I drew my line and I said, no, no, I'm not repeating that. I don't think that that's news. I don't think it's in any way an objective opinion. It's just something sent out there to um, influence us, to um, basically hide the truth, not tell the truth. Now. It's nothing new that politicians want to influence what we report. Back at ABC News, when I was producing reports on the Bush-Dukakis race, I I'm Greek-American, okay, so I liked Michael Dukakis. I would have been very proud to have a Greek-American elected president. But none of that matters in my journalism life. I have to separate myself from all of that. So I was personally responsible for putting Willie Horton's picture on national television at least a half dozen times. I mean, I knew that that was a manipulative tactic, but it was being loyal to the news. That was the actual story of the Dukakis race, that the Republicans were attacking him in all these ways and he wasn't responding. Well, you can't tell that story without putting Willie Horton's face out there. I knew it was, it was manipulative, but it had to be done. That was the story. And I had to step aside from whatever personal feelings I had and do what was the right journalistic thing. And so I had no problem with that. I, I, I really, I mean, I, I really do believe that journalists think about that and they do that all the time. And people, by and large, don't give them enough credit for that. 
So now we've had so many questions. So I've told you a little bit about how I interact with him as a reporter and anchor today. Uh, what about as a teacher? I started teaching the journalism five years ago at Iona and at Norwalk, and I found I really loved it. I came to teaching late in life. It really is very satisfying for me. And, and by the way, in my classes, I speak for an hour and 20 minutes. We have about an hour left still. <laughs> and there might be a quiz at the end. But, um, and there will be some history here. My, my students were coming in. Oh, and by the way, let me say a couple of things about the students, especially at the community college. We have many immigrants from Latin America, non-citizens. I had a DACA kid from Lithuania. We have inner city kids. We have, these are all great kids who are trying to live the American dream in community college, further themselves. We didn't have any Mexican rapists, you know. <laughs> It really is an eye-opener when you take a look at people who have come here and are really desiring to be Americans and to rise up in the system. And that's one of the things I love about teaching. What really bothered me is these 19-year-olds would come into my class, Journalism 101, and they would ask me, is it true that the news is fake? And now this class that I'm teaching them is supposed to teach them how to write, how to report, how to ask questions, how to go out and dig for facts, how to understand what a fact is, how to uh, discover the lead, which is the hardest thing for a journalist to do, which I struggle on every story with. I don't know if you realize, but journalism is written where the lead is up top and then the less important information is lower down. And sometimes you don't know what the lead is. You don't know what the significant part of your story is until you have gone out and interviewed and come back and tried to synthesize it. And sometimes your editors send you out and they think they know the story, but they're not out in the field. And so I think in many ways, Journalism 101 should be renamed Discovering the Lead. But I realized that I had to put in a history component into this class before we got into the nuts and bolts of writing and reporting because they didn't understand what role journalism played in our society and why was it important to have a free press and so I went back looking through history and I found the trial of John Peter Zenger so how many of you here know the story of the trial of John Peter Zenger one two three okay a handful of people I'm going to tell you that story now John Peter Zenger was one of the few professional printers in the colony of New York in the 730s, 1730s. I'm listening to the history of Byzantium now. That's why I said 730s. <laughs> I have the 730s and, uh, and uh, Justinian in my mind. In the 1730s, he was an immigrant from Germany, and he was the printer for the New York Weekly Journal, which was put out by a number of people who were opponents of the then governor of New York, the royal governor of New York, appointed by the King of England by the name of William Cosby. Now this Cosby was a real character. He had done a number of things that were really oppressive. He had also fired the chief judge of New York, of the colony of New York, because he didn't like an opinion. It was a dissenting opinion. It wasn't even the majority opinion. He didn't like an opinion he wrote, so he fired the judge and he put his own guy in there. So they started writing articles that were critical of Cosby. And Cosby wanted to shut down the newspaper. Does this sound familiar yet? <laughs> and he determined the articles were anonymous, even though most people sort of knew who wrote them. But he determined that the way to shut down the paper would be to arrest the printer. 
the German immigrant. So even then they were going after the immigrants. Although actually everybody was an immigrant then. But he was the German immigrant, if you know what I mean. Not the British immigrant. And so they arrested him. And if you think things are political now, this was very political. Because it wasn't just a case of we're going to apply the law to this guy. He tried to get two grand juries, he impaneled two different grand juries who refused to indict him. And meanwhile, Zenger is still in jail. They set his bail at 400 pounds, which was a huge amount of money. He didn't have it. They then tried to get the public hangman to burn copies of the newspaper. The public hangman said, I don't want to do this. He went to the board of aldermen and said, you have to vote to give me permission. They adjourned. He went to the... <laughs> He, he went to another group, which the name escapes me right now, but they refused to vote to allow him to do this. So finally, they determined to use a legal procedure called an information, which means you could bypass a grand jury and just charge the guy. And he was charged with seditious libel. Seditious libel is a combination of sedition and libel. Libel is defamation. Sedition is going against the state. Seditious libel is a defamatory comment in writing against an official. The British common law of seditious libel was much less favorable to free speech than our current American law is. And so all that had to be proved was, did this person publish that comment? The only question for the jury is, did they publish it? And then the judge would determine if it met the standard of defamation. It was almost a case of strict liability. That's a civil term, not a criminal term. But basically, the deck was stacked against him. He had a couple of very conscientious lawyers, Zenger did. They stepped forward to help him, and they tried everything. They told the judge, Judge, you shouldn't be hearing this case. You need to recuse yourself because you were appointed by the very governor who's bringing this case. Does this sound familiar yet? <laughs> Is this where we invoke the name of Brett Kavanaugh yet? And so the judge's response to that was to disbar the lawyers. So this is like warfare now. This is warfare now because people didn't have any of the rights then that we have now. And so the government could get away with what it could get away with. And so they appointed a lawyer for him. Am I going too long with this? No. Okay. They appointed this lawyer who was an associate of the governor. And he actually took the legal ethics to heart. And he said, even though I'm an associate of the governor, I'm going to try to do my best to defend him. They had actually stacked the jury, I forgot to tell you, with supporters of the governor. And this lawyer, this young lawyer, was able to get that jury excused and another more favorable jury to Zenger put in. But then they realized that this guy didn't have the firepower, really, to do it. And he was basically pleading not guilty and saying we're not guilty when, according to the law, he did print the article and that made him, in effect, guilty. So they called one of the most famous lawyers in the colonies, Andrew Hamilton, not Alexander Hamilton, Andrew Hamilton, from Philadelphia. And the term Philadelphia lawyer, everybody know that term? I'm gonna get myself a Philadelphia lawyer. That comes from this case because Philadelphia was a much bigger city than New York then and they had this established lawyer 
Andrew Hamilton was actually born in Scotland in the 1650s, 100 years before Alexander Hamilton. And he was in his 70s when he came to this case. And he came into the courtroom at the last minute in almost this like Perry Mason moment. And he changed the defense from pleading not guilty to telling the jury, yes, he did print this. But if what he printed was the truth, you must acquit him. Because this is not the case of a small printer. This is the case of the liberty of everybody. The jury went out for 10 minutes, and they came back, and they acquitted Zenger. And it was a lot of people doing a lot of things. When we talk about resistance, at every step along the way, people had to resist. The hangmen had to resist. The grand juries had to resist. The lawyers had to resist. And finally, the jury resisted. And the jury said, no, that's the law, but we're not going to do that. Now, a lawyer friend of mine said that was just jury nullification. That's a lawyer put down for saying the jury didn't do what they were supposed to do. But it actually changed American jurisprudence because it changed the standard of defamation. And it led to the freedom of speech that led to the revolution. It led to the ideas that were put into the First Amendment. This one case changed American society and a whole group of people who didn't have this right by working together got this right and so I teach that to my students and I try to tell them that what Andrew Hamilton said was that truth is a defense to libel and that remains the law to this day in the United States not necessarily in England and so we're back to this idea of truth okay if a journalist wants to be protected from somebody going after them all they have to do is tell the truth. And this was even furthered in 1964 in New York Times versus Sullivan, which was another landmark case in the area of defamation law. And so I teach this to my students. We also go through McCarthyism, which was interesting because it was a case, I think it's more appropriate than Watergate, because in McCarthyism, journalists were actually losing their jobs. There was a publication called Red Channels, which if you were on that list, your employer would fire you. Howard K. Smith, who some of you may be old enough to remember on the ABC News, was on one of those lists in the 1950s, and he thought that he was going to lose his career. So I like to show my students pictures. <laughs> I show them this one, Senator Joseph McCarthy with, uh, with Roy Cohn next to him, and the stance that Roy Cohn is taking. They didn't have a name for it then, but today we call it manspreading. <laughs> and it's actually, it's actually illegal on the, on the uh, subway. But Morrow collected film of McCarthy for a year before he went on with his landmark program in 1954 exposing McCarthy. And Morrow really did kind of step over the line into advocacy, but he felt it was necessary to do that. And I tell them, so this was McCarthy's sidekick in the 1950s. And the same man is Trump's sidekick in the 1980s. He taught him a lot. He taught him a lot. A lot of the tactics, I mean, a lot of the tactics about Marvin Rothman, the personal destruction, that's straight out of McCarthyism. He said, yes. Well, that's an, excell an excellent comment that Trump has said, where is my Roy Cohn today? So then I show them a picture of Edward R. Murrow, 
who is actually the father of modern broadcast journalism. He actually created the idiom, first in radio in Europe in the 30s and 40s, with Murrow's boys, people like Walter Cronkite and Andy Rooney, Eric Severide. The way we write and broadcast follows their conventions, which is very different from print, which I could do a whole lecture just on that. Anyway, this was Murrow's sidekick in the 50s, and Fred Friendly was his producer. And then here's Fred Friendly in the 80s when he was my professor at Columbia Journalism School. And we're all products of our teachers, I think, in some ways. And Fred Friendly used to tell us, he used to say, anytime you have the thought as a journalist to shade the truth or slant a story, and you say to yourself, nobody's going to really know if I do that. And he would look at us and he would point at us. And he'd say, you'd know. And then he would point at another one and he'd say, you'd know. And he did this, he did this almost every class. And that, I can't tell you how many times that you'd know knocks around in my head when I'm in the newsroom. Okay, so now that I'm doing financial news at Bloomberg, it's a really interesting place to work. I sit in the newsroom maybe 30 feet from Mike Bloomberg because he doesn't believe in offices. He has not a single office in the building. He comes from Wall Street where they all sit on a big trading floor. So he likes that. So he sits in the newsroom with the journalists. And basically I'm on this computer called the Bloomberg Terminal, which is an amazing machine, which has all this data coming in, which he charges like $15,000 to rent it to you for a year. He's made a fortune on it. And now I'm doing financial news reports of 90 seconds on WCBS, but I'm doing them at Bloomberg. And I'm supposed to tell you what is the NASDAQ doing, what is the Dow doing, what is the dollar doing, things like that. But I try to take my teaching and I try to take it now to broadcasting and I try to teach people about what's really going on out there. Whenever I come across a great story, I really try to project it out there. So did you know that when the Trump tax law was passed, this most recent one, the last vote of the weekend before, one of the last votes to say he was going to vote for it was Bob Corker of Tennessee, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, considered to be somewhat of a statesman in the Senate. And he was one of the last ones to say he would vote for it. Three days later, I think at around the time they were actually voting for it, it comes out that at the last minute, Congress had put in a proviso in this law after everybody had agreed to vote for it, by the way, that gave a huge tax break to real estate developers and people who own pass-through corporations like, oh, Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, and guess who else? Bob Corker, who owns apartment buildings in Tennessee. So I got this story and I put it on every half hour. I think these are the kind of things that people need to know, how your government really works. And Bob Corker said, well, he didn't know that they changed it. He had only read a two-page summary of the bill and voted for it. He didn't read that provision, which is even more of an indictment, in my view, because these people in Congress, they pass bills that they don't read. And it's become acceptable now. And I know it's hard to read a 2,000-page bill, but they need to do something about that. But they're not. And then the next day, it came out that not only did Bob Corker own apartment buildings in Tennessee, but Bob Corker's chief of staff owned apartment buildings in Tennessee. He probably read the bill. He probably wrote the bill. 
And now I'm just cherry picking these stories. I don't know when I send it out there if it has any impact on the public to understand how their government works, but I can only try to do that. Another thing they do is they allow lobbyists from Citibank and other big corporations to come in and write the laws of the United States in the capital. Yeah, in general. So I think I'm going to skip over what I know about the 18th Congressional District, and maybe we can get into that in our question and answer, because I think I'm coming to the natural end here. I want to tell you about resistance, and what do I know about resistance? And what is it that we all can do if we don't like what our government is doing? What kind of choices? How do you make those choices? And I want to tell you the story of my father, who was born in Greece, he was an immigrant, and he was born in 1919. And in 1941, when the Nazi tanks rolled into Athens, he's a 21-year-old man, and he has to decide what he's going to do with his life now. And we think, I think about my kids and my students at 21 and all the pressures of life. Imagine being 21 in Europe at that time. You know, I, I, I interviewed Anne Frank's stepsister, in front of 800 people, I'm buddies with the Chabad in Westchester, so they asked me to do this. And I said in my introduction to her, everybody who lived in Europe at that time had their life turned upside down, whether it was in truly horrific ways by the people who were sent to the camps, but even everyday people like my father. And so the communists were coming to him and saying, come to the mountains with us and fight. And my father, if you knew my father, he would have nothing to do with any communist whatsoever. You also have to realize what a split there was in society, but I'll get to that in a second. He left with the Greek army and the British. He spent nine years in the army, the entire decade of his 20s, from 1941 to 1949, first fighting to kick the Germans out of Greece. And then as soon as the Germans were kicked out, the communists came in. So the very communists who were fighting with the army and the royalists to kick out the Germans, now turned on the rest of the country and tried to take it over and bring it behind the Iron Curtain. So the war lasted till 1949, as some of my Greek friends know, and he was in the army till he was close to 30 years old. And he never talked to me about any of it. He was from that greatest generation. When we talk about the greatest generation here, there was also a greatest generation on the other side. And he spoke English because he came from an educated family. His grandfather had translated Dante's Inferno into modern demotic Greek. And so when the Marshall Plan came to Greece, an American company gave him a job so that he could speak to the managers and, and the workers in Greek and, and in English. And then they sponsored him to come to the United States. And then he met my mother and fell in mm -hmm. love and got married and became a citizen. And he so admired Harry Truman that he wrote Truman a letter and told him how much he admired that Truman had set up the Marshall Plan that had allowed Greece and other countries to stay free of communism. And uh, Truman wrote him back. And I still have the letter. He had a secretary. In those days, at the bottom of a letter, there were two sets of initials, one in double capitals and one in double lowercase. So the double capital, I believe, was HST, and then the lowercase was the typist's initials. And it was signed by Harry Truman. I have a three-cent stamp on it. <laughs> but my father came to this country and became a, 
passionate American and still loved his Greek heritage. But he really appreciated what this country had done for freedom. And so I think we've lost a lot of that knowledge of where we all come from in this country. Even if you are new to this country, and I'm only here a generation on my father's side and two generations on my mother's side, we have a shared heritage in this country. We have a history, and as Americans, we need to know what it is. And that might be something someone on the right might say, but this is the anniversary of Charlottesville now. And you have these neo-Nazis who go into the streets using these symbols that they don't even understand. They don't, they don't know the history. They don't know any of it. And what worries me about the country is that I think Trump is probably on his way to getting what he deserves, whatever that is. I don't know yet. I mean, it really depends on what people do, just like it depended on what they did with John Peter Zenger. What really worries me is that right now, 43% of Republicans say Trump should be allowed to shut down the news media. People actually believe that. And when a country becomes divided, it's a very dangerous thing. In Greece, my wife's family had a relative who went with the communists. And the family wrote him off. They never spoke of him or to him again. And they didn't know what happened to him. And that's what happens when a society really, really divides into a civil war. And so we're not there yet. And I certainly hope we're not going there. I hope that people of good conscience are going to keep their civic obligations in mind and try to do the right thing. So that's my speech. I hope you weren't too disappointed that Richard Gere wasn't here. <laughs> okay, I'll take questions. In the early part of your comment, you said something about how important it was for fairness in your reporting. Yeah. Given what we've got going on right now, Charlottesville, you just mentioned the, the anniversary with Mr. Trump coming out with fake news, how do you balance fairness versus truth when you report? It's not really good guys on both sides. Yeah, and that's a really hard question. And Trump said something, which I was going to put in my speech and I forgot, but thank you for giving me the opportunity to say it. I took a peek at you. <laughs> Trump just last week said, what you read is not what it seems. Yeah, what you see, what you read, what you see is not what it seems. And it seems like there's an effort now to totally obscure reality. And you know, especially the next generation, they're constantly in their cell phones. And nobody's looking up and looking around and figuring out what's really happening in the world. And so I don't know if I have an answer for your question, but you just do the best you can and you try to apply the standards and think critically about how you're going to explain something that's going on. Um, in reference to that, this whole, uh, during, I was working at CNN during the election, and the whole uh, question was false equivalency. Right. Trying to be fair, this thing of balance, and looking yeah. at whether these two are equivalent in exactly. egregiousness. And everybody was doing it the old way. Which the old way. Have a quote from yeah, a quote from here. If you say something bad about yeah. Hillary, you have to say something bad. But the, the um, significance of the things were so uneven, imbalanced. Yeah. And all the coverage and everything, I think, with, without the kind of questions, just 
there's another thing I think happens is that people say something, they're quoted, and there's no follow-up on no. whether what they said was true or how significant it was. Right. And I think that happened in McCarthyism. They just took quotes from people, and it's happening now. I think people are more aware of that that, that is a good thing to do. I try to do fact-checking, but in broadcasting, how, you, how do you do it on the fly? It's hard, and there are cutbacks. It's a much more difficult environment right now, but that's a very good point. Thank you. Why do all his tweets have to be in the news? Why do these people think they have to show every tweet that he does? So that's a good question. The question was, why does the news have to repeat every tweet? And the answer is, we don't have to. It's what Karen Tumulty said, you don't have to swing at every pitch. But then now you've got chin music coming at you as well, if anybody knows the baseball metaphor. Lloyd. So the question I have is what you said a little bit before about Garo, that he, I'm paraphrasing, went a little across the line or something and went into advocacy. And the question that I have is that it's clear that Trump and the Republicans are a malevolent force in society in the world. They're trying to destroy the press actively. And yet the, 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 the main powerful national news media are still kind of standing there sort of like with their finger in their mouth. I, I still think that Marty Barron at the Washington Post edict that they will not use the word lie still stands. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that feels like going down to the Post newsroom and slapping the guy in the face and saying, wake up. You're, our, our, our country is under attack. Our society is under attack. This guy is out there lying and you're saying, well, you know, we have to be careful. Now, I'm not saying that CBS and the New York Times needs to turn into a left version of Fox News, but I constantly, or, you know, I constantly hear things like, the president said so-and-so, as opposed to the president without citing any, any you know, supporting data. It's going up a little bit, mm -hmm. but it's been it's close to two years now, and they're still always sort of seeming to bend backwards and giving him the benefit of the doubt. And I just wonder, in your conversations and your editorial boards, when you guys are sitting there and you know these guys are lying and you know these are instantiated allegations, why is everything still reported as, you know, uh, careful? Well, I think for a lot of reasons. One is just the conventions of journalism and the way we report things. We're used to trying to step back and not be part of it. And we're very conscious of that. So there's that aspect to it. Also, you should know that Murrow hit the height of his influence after that 1954 report against McCarthy. And actually, CBS got very nervous about letting its journalists go out there in that way after that, and in very subtle ways reined them in. And it's really interesting because before that broadcast, people like Eisenhower were afraid to criticize McCarthy. People in the Senate were like the senators and congressmen now with Trump. They were afraid to criticize McCarthy. What Morrow did was showed McCarthy in his own words, on his own film, doing the things that he did. And it was enough for people to kind of realize this is not right. But yet, also Morrow paid a price for that. The other issue is you fall into the danger we just talked about here of saying, well, this person said this and this person said this. So a lot of it is institutional and a lot of it is 
not wanting to be an advocate. There's an interesting interview that you all should watch. It's with a guy named, I believe his name is Michael Hirschhorn, and Ari Melber interviewed him back in December of 2016, and this guy is a producer of reality television shows. And he said to us that Trump is the ultimate reality TV star, and that when we looked for people to cast on these shows, we wanted people who could create constant conflict without resolution. And at first I thought maybe that was an apt description of Trump, but I think it's in many ways a benign description because I think what's going on now is much further than that. I think he's attacking the institutions of this country and it's not just the press, he's attacking the courts, he's attacking the justice system, he's attacking the economic framework that we've lived under for the last 50 years. He's attacking our allies. Mm -hmm. and, and reality. And, <laughs> and, and, and reality. Thank He's you. Reality. Thank you, Richard. He is attacking reality. Yeah. Lloyd, I don't know if I really answered your question. I tried to. Well, if you see Marty Barron, you should tell him to tell the desk to start using the word lie in the same way that the New York Times does. I just want to make a comment to, um, about your why the newspapers don't do that. And Noam Chomsky, some years ago, wrote an essay, why, what it, why, mainstream, why mainstream media is mainstream. And basically, they have to answer. They're in their, they have to make a profit. And basically, they have to account to their advertisers. So there's also that kind of pressure yeah. on the news as well, which puts them in a certain sure. kind of framework. Sponsored. It's sponsored. It was the sponsors that canceled exactly. Murrow's, exactly. their sponsorship yeah. of Murrow. Yeah. Yes. Would you talk more about resistance? <laughs> and can you, can you talk about it in the context? Because nobody's talked about it. We talked about professional media. You're, you grew up and been nurtured and taught and teach profession, standards of professional media. But this is, this is an intermediated um, uh, service. I mean, it's a you're, you're a professional. So you, you take facts and you intermediate them for a public. But we live in social media. Right. And this is disintermediated. This is direct to customer. This is Trump without a communications department. This is Trump without any filter whatsoever. Yes. He doesn't give this up because he recognizes that that Twitter machine is his lifeline to people, direct to the customer. So it, in I'm many here. ways, it, as, as I listen to all, all of this and, and, uh, <clears throat> and then have to, have to figure out, and this, this cuts to, to what you were just talking about, how do you figure out how to speak and how to behave uh, in, an, um, in an environment that where all the filters are gone? So all the standards have disappeared. Name-calling and the, just the vulgarity and, and all of it, which was never part of politics, even the worst of politics, when I was, when I was growing up. The assault now... We had, there were ads on, on television during the last election where they had kids in front of TVs, you know, going like this, how, how, do, you have, how do you have a man like this as President of the United States? He, he can't speak like this in front, of, in front of your children. But he does, and he will, and he will never stop. And so we're left with this, it, it, it's almost apples and oranges, it's almost like a, an unequal 
or disequal competition. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you have a profession trying to be professional, report about uh, someone or something which has utterly no standards whatsoever, and in fact views those standards as an enemy of what their ultimate purpose is. But wait, I do want to repeat though, I agree. Any ideas? Resistance, solutions, anything? What you're bringing up is that new media is disrupting the world. And media, when it develops, does disrupt the world. And so when the printing press was developed in Europe by Gutenberg, it allowed everyday people to read the Bible and it revolutionized the Western Catholic Church. And that was a revolution in the terms of what was going on in those years beyond even what we're dealing with now with social media or maybe on a par with it. So I think social media is changing the world in ways we don't even know. It's changing the way our minds work. If you're a young person now, you don't have to read. You just Google something. Oh, I know about it now. Just little things like you don't know anybody's phone number anymore because you don't need to know it. And so all of the ways we used to think are changing. And I'm not really a futurist to tell you how they're going to change and continue to change. I think people of good conscience need to search within themselves and figure out what they need to do. Now, that seems like a really simple and pat answer, but you have to make your own decisions in life. Do you go with the communists or do you go with the royalists? What are you going to do? I think I would suggest that we make friends with Trump supporters. Believe it or not, I think that's, that's uh, a step towards healing the society. Yeah. And I, we have some relatives, of, uh, a neighbor. Listen to them. And then say, let's talk about what we agree about, because everybody's in their own silo. And you become more and more fractured. I don't know how to put it as a question. One of the concerns I have about speaking as an informed person is that we tend to think or speak about uh, things we don't like as Trump is a buffoon. And I've come to realize he's not a buffoon. He's an absolute mastermind oh, yeah. and frightening. And I think you were talking about wordsmithing before, about claim versus says, you know, just in the smallest way, changing things. I, I would love to see the media give a little bit more credence to how frightening he is. Right, and Lloyd brought up the word lie. I'm saying it goes even past lying because that's, that's a judgment and that's where people take sides. And I think that when I listen to the media being calm and rational and balanced, I get angry at the, at the media. Well, a lot of people get angry at us. <laughs> um, yeah, and then you. Are you familiar? Um, so I've read some of, um, so, so first of all, I'm an immigrant and I grew up in Communist Cuba until I was 10 and then in fascist Spain until I was 14. So um, when I see this, um, I remember huddling and listening to Voice of the Americas with my <coughs> family. So when I started hearing Trump, it was like I couldn't sleep at night because it was so like reminiscent. I mean, even though as a child, I was an old enough child to know and also being a child of <coughs> dissident. But, um, but so anyway, I'm a teacher and, and I'm, you know, I totally think that you can have a society and the 
democracy without free press. Mm. So one of the things that I was, I, I, re, I, I have been reading Jay Rosen, uh, his writing, and he, he, he talks mostly about print media, but he talks about the fact that he's suggesting to journalists that your lead is the, the counter lie, like that you don't start with a tweet and then whatever, a context, that you start, you start with the context first that you start with you know this is what's happening and then the tweet comes like as a secondary which has been debunked and yeah. i don't see i mean are you familiar with you're absolutely right my news director always tells us put the story in context you have to put it in context so that's what the point i was trying to make with the amazon story you can't just say he's attacking amazon you have to say he's also attacking the publisher of the Washington Post. You have to try to put it in some kind of context. That is actually the most important thing. So you're absolutely right about that. So I'm going to take that sentence and say he also, that's very bland. Couldn't you take, say something more about he cleverly, you know, he manipulated? <laughs> Edward, Edward R. Murrow didn't use adverbs and adjectives. No. I ban adjectives in my students' broadcast writing because journalists are supposed to show and not tell. We're not supposed to tell you somebody is clever because that's our judgment. We're supposed to show you how they're clever. So adjectives are and adverbs are not the kind of words I like to use. Um, someone mentioned before that uh, people often conflate um, opinion with the news. And I think you see that a lot on um, you know, all kinds of media. Like there's a difference between, look at the Wall Street Journal, for example. You read the news, it's seems like it's a fairly normal, objective thing. And then you, if you were to read their editorial page, it seems like Trump is the greatest person in the world. Um, Murdoch. Yeah. So um, my question is, is there any way to make it more evident, to make that separation more clear for people that you know you have the people on the panel that are giving their hot takes and their opinions as opposed to this is the news, and we're not trying to swing it one way or the other. This is just what we're reporting on. Because I think what happens is you have uh, a lot of Trump supporters, people on the right, who kind of get into their own bubble, and their excuse is always, you know, it, it's their bias. They're, you know, they're against Trump. It doesn't matter what he says. They're going to be against him. Which, you know, if you listen to the opinion, like, it's one thing to disagree with an opinion. It's another thing to totally disagree with. You have to delineate the difference in the presentation and you have to try to make that clear so that comes with clear writing and clear editing and clear producing so that those two kinds of things are separated traditionally in newspapers they were separated by the fact that there were the news pages and then there was the editorial page so you knew that on the editorial page you were getting opinion and you knew on the news pages that you weren't now, unfortunately, with 24-hour news, that's kind of blending. Michael. The other thing is, I mean, it's very easy to say that you should um, do certain things a certain way and speak to them a certain way. But understand something. The people who are watching MSNBC are not the same people as the people who are watching Fox News. And if MSNBC viewers uh, are, wa are listening to someone who's saying lies, da 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 it doesn't make a difference. We already know that. If the, 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 the Fox News people aren't going to switch over to the MSNBC or the CNNs or anything else. They're getting their news very slanted from one direction. 
And that's why if you have a conversation with someone who only watches Fox News, mm -hmm. they totally think of the world differently than yeah, we do. And if you've ever yeah. watched yeah. it, and I have watched it yeah, because I've I turned it on it. purposely to yeah. see the difference. And that's say, how well, I know. They hear that in the yeah. Yes. Anyway. Republicans are 30 million people. Registered Democrats are 43 million people. About 40 to 50 percent of Republicans support Trump. There's a whole lot more out of us that yeah. don't. So when oh. they speak, 40% of Trump's opponents, there's still a small fraction. Right, of Americans. Yeah. Exactly. The other yeah. part, too, is people who, when I went to the Women's March, <coughs> I was marching for 10 other women that didn't have the guts to go, or enough courage themselves to go, or the wherewithal, or the means, or whatever. I am hearing from people quietly when I go out, indivisible, what's indivisible, what side is that on? Liberal. Tell me more. So I want some or the Westchester Indivisible cards. It's it's done silently. It's not done publicly. Most Americans don't stand up and scream right. like he does. So as much as he's saying, as much as we're hearing all the bad stuff, most of us are very good. That might answer the question about resistance. And how does that happen? Positive note to add to your comment. I googled understanding Trump supporters, just <laughs> as a general. Right. And I've got there's many many articles there that are helpful to understanding the other's point of view, which I to. think yep. we really need yep. to be aware of. Yep. Some of their reasoning is valid, right. and we need to put that in the context of crossing this great divide that you're talking about. And and I just want to so put in understanding Trump supporters and. That, that will be helpful, okay. I think. First, Lois, I know you've been waiting, and then you. So, Lois, please. John, I, I think um, there's something foundational that we're not talking about here, and that you and I have seen in the classroom, and I teach, and that's information literacy and understanding that what you're reading on the social media is put out there by anybody who wants to put it out there. And just because you put it out there doesn't mean it's fact. Remember the Boston right. Tribune. Uh, so uh, there is. Uh, this is disintermediation. I'd be skeptical. This is just direct information direct to the customer. It has no. Right, but they are. They, but they don't they understand don't know the it. Filter right. So that so that this, this is there's a study out there, Stanford University, 2015 to 2016, did a study on information literacy, and what they found absolutely appalled them. They said right. this, this is uh, the the lack of understanding. And, and the critical thinking about critical, being able to understand what you're reading is true or false or opinion, it, it could destroy this democracy. Well, I think you just hit, I mean, it's too late, because we're all sitting here saying, uh, discussing the nuance between opinion and reporting when, you know, is it too late? Because I don't think they could tell the difference between the Wall Street Journal and the National Enquirer. Those inquiring minds want to know. It's no surprise that the guy who owns the Enquirer is like right there right. as a Trump crony. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, Russian disinformation. Yes. I think it, 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 many people in this room want to affect change, and, and I'm a political operative in a small town. I think she said it a while ago, the only way is to cross the street and talk to the person you don't agree with. And don't talk about politics at the beginning. Mm. Talk about rain or the weather. And then talk and make friends, and I think that's the only way. It's proven again and again. Personal contact is better than anything else. And yeah. Trump is trying to divide us. 
Yeah, yeah. I want to bring up the Electoral College because we're all sitting here talking about the president, and actually, in the popular vote, he was not elected. Yeah, he was elected by the Electoral College. So, wouldn't part of resistance be to advocate to amend, maybe not destroy, but amend the Electoral College? Well, there is an effort to get states to agree to this pact where they will abide by the national popular vote. There is an issue, though, with national popular vote. And the issue is that when you count it, there's no one authority that can certify the number. And so if you had an election like Nixon-Kennedy, where it was just 100,000 people, and, you know, most of them were dead people in Chicago voting, as, as Nixon didn't point out, it's very hard to, because we have 50 states, to count the popular vote in a close election. So I wish you had more time to comment on this, but I think that the loss of the fairness doctrine has had a major impact. I'd like to know what you Oh, absolutely. I would like to do a whole lecture on the changes Ronald Reagan made to broadcast television, because when I studied regulated industries at Columbia Law School, they taught us that the FCC was supposed to distribute the spectrum in the public interest, convenience, and necessity, and that standard was wiped out by Reagan. Now, it only affects broadcasting, not cable, because cable is not regulated in the same way. I could do a whole hour on that issue. You're absolutely right. So let me finish with one thing. So you talk about Trump dividing us, but how many people are here today? 40 people? Maybe 50? So this is how you start to unite in rooms like this one. And it is only people of one side of the spectrum. That's true. But this is where it all begins. So in terms of uniting, I thank you for letting me be the venue to let all of you do that today. Thank you.